0: Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Lindsay, and thank you, Catherine, for um, providing the opportunity to address the centre uh, here in Dublin. Um, And uh, just to follow on what Lindsay said, this this research is coming out of an AHRC-funded project in Queen's University in Belfast, and there's a number of researchers on on the project looking at uh, poverty and public health and welfare in Belfast in the 19th and 20th centuries. I'm particularly looking at uh, the 20th century. Uh, so, it, uh, in 1935, uh, the Medical Officer for Health for Belfast, Charles Thompson, wrote in his annual report that, quote, it's a the truism that public health is a purchasable commodity. Thompson's comments were aimed at Belfast Corporation in an attempt to increase expenditure on the city's public health services generally, and specifically on the municipal maternity and child welfare schemes. Although initially introduced in 1918, Belfast's Maternity and Child Welfare services lagged far behind similar schemes in British cities. The lack of such provision was highly controversial due to the city's infamously high infant and maternal mortality rates. In turn, this paper examines the political, social, economic, administrative, medical, and religious factors which led to the underdevelopment of Belfast's Maternity and Child Welfare provision. The paper is in particular influenced by a number of recent trends in Irish and British historiography. Within a a British context, there has been much renewed focus on interwar municipal health care and services. These are services provided by the county boroughs, such as Belfast Corporation, Dublin Corporation, as well as county councils, as opposed to voluntary charitable health care and poor law health care, which have been the traditional focus of attention. The interwar period is viewed as the zenith of local municipal authority and autonomy, and as a result provides insights into locally controlled public health systems and issues relating to local responsiveness and democratic accountability. The period particularly contrasts with modern day health care systems such as the NHS or the Irish health system which tend to be centrally and bureaucratically controlled. Much of the recent historiography has primarily concentrated concentrated on the issue of finance and patterns of expenditure, which has been seen as a proxy for local authority effort and standard of service. This is examined particularly in the collaborative work of a number of historians, including Alyssa Levine, John Stewart, Martin Powell and Becky Taylor, resulting in the 2011 monograph Cradle to Grave, Municipal Medicine in Interwar England and Wales, and a number of journal articles. This body of work challenges previous perceptions that English and Welsh municipal healthcare care investment was dichotomised by region and politics, that the poor north and wealthier south and labour or conservative controlled bodies invested more or less uh, respectively. In stu- instead, the study determined that multiple and nuanced factors influenced local public health policies and growth was eb- evident even in the most low spending of county boroughs. The study concludes that while municipal provision was highly differentiated, it was not necessarily a failing system which cried out for replacement by a top-down version of socialised healthcare. A number of other studies have also depicted a more positive outlook, which has revised earlier histories which tended to stress Bevanite claims that locally controlled healthcare undermined greater liquidity and efficiency of service. Historians have traditionally viewed Northern Irish or the North of Ireland into war public health even more negatively than its British counterpart, counterpart and is portrayed as being marked by government inertia, parsimonious local authorities, peaceful implementation of services, and a limited integration between various sectors and providers. This paper explores, explores whether the negative outlook on British interwar public health can be reassessed, particularly within the context of recent understandings on British municipal medicine. Such a positive outlook is especially challenging in Belfast, due not only to the the political and religious divisions, but also the high rates of unemployment that marked Belfast as one of the most depressed regions in the United Kingdom. This study also not only informs British debates, but also wider Irish understandings, as highlighted most extensively in the work of Lindsay Arner Byrne, returning to child welfare in the South, and particularly in Dublin, was central to the religious, medical, social, and political battles of the period. This paper on Belfast maternity and child welfare provides another Irish urban and regional example and a comparative perspective to developments south of the border. So, just looking at municipal healthcare expenditure. In general, in Belfast, expenditure on personal health services rose from 62,000 in 1914 to 134,000 in 1921 to almost 200,000 in 1939, indicating that a general expansion in municipal health services services occurred. Levine et al.'s recent study has demonstrated the need to disaggregate expenditure levels to ascertain, ascertain a fuller picture of investment in such services. Graph A here demonstrates public health expenditure from 1913 14 to 1938 39, disaggregated by type of provision, which were primarily in the fields of infectious disease, TB, mental health, maternity and child welfare, school medical service, and venereal disease. Infectious disease was one of the corporation's most important types of services. The majority of the expenditure went on staff and institutional costs of running the Burn Fever Hospital. Established initially in 1908 with 168 beds, its capacity was increased up to 268 in 1911, and after scarlet fever epidemics in 1922 and 1923 was further expanded to 325 beds. Although traditional infectious diseases, including cholera, typhus, and smallpox, were all but wiped out, the hospital provided insurance from recurring epidemic outbreaks from diseases such as scarlet fever, diphtheria, enteric or typhoid fever, and measles, which from 1932 became a notified disease. This provision was predominantly funded out of local rates with limited funding from central government, indicating a degree of local preference for the service, which was driven out of need for isolation of infectious cases. Furthermore, TB provision was, one of Belfast's, was another one of Belfast's most important municipal responsibilities. Acts of Parliament in 1908, 1911 and 1913 led to increased TB services and establishment of committees by each county council and county borough. Belfast Corporation's expenditure on TB services grew rapidly from 1914 after appropriation of the former voluntary White Abbey Sanatorium, while dispensary and domiciliary TB services were also established. In 1921, the corporation opened a second institution, the Greymount Municipal Hospital for TB children. TB services were funded by both central and local government. In 1926, close to 30% of the corporation TB committee's income came from the Imperial or London government's health insurance fund. When funding from central sources sources was strong, as was the case with TB services, local authorities often acted as agencies for national policies. Mental health formed another important form of expenditure and rose from twenty-six thousand in nineteen fourteen to sixty-seven thousand in nineteen thirty-nine. Irish mental health Irish mental institutions had comparatively high rates of institutionalization on both sides of the border, which reached their peak in the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties. Provision was partly reformed after the passing of the Mental Treatment Northern Ireland Act in 1932, yet, as Pauline Pyre has highlighted, the Northern Irish system continued to suffer from structural deficiencies, lack of external treatment, and funding shortages. Venereal disease, school medical service, and maternity and child welfare were the lowest forms of expenditure. These were introduced in the post-World War I period, and these services didn't result in the establishment of municipal institutions or hospitals. While I think this picture is not exactly representative of the overall positive perspective of British interwar municipal health, this survey does demonstrate the complexity of the sector, which can be explained slowly through local parsimony or local government inertia. Contraction and retrenchment was evident between the early 1920s and early 1930s. However, the mid to late 1910s was a period of rapid growth, and the upward curve returned in the latter half of the 1930s. Although these statistics and trends are still undergoing research, it is evident that a multiplicity of factors were influential. Central funding was important in relation to TB. Also local choice, often tied to need, was evident, especially relating to infectious diseases. The role of medical officials and institutions were also prominent. The largest forms of expenditure went on services that all had high staffing and maintenance costs, along with full-time medical professionals that could agitate and influence political decisions. A comparative analysis of Belfast expenditure on these services helps to further expand and understand Belfast's performance in public health. This table compares expenditure in Belfast with Dublin, Liverpool, and the English and Welsh mean per thousand of population. Interestingly, infectious disease expenditure was somewhere close to the English and Welsh mean, as was Belfast TB expenditure, although significantly lower than Liverpool. Expenditure on mental health was particularly high and exceeded the English and Welsh mean. The lack of separate provision for mental deficiency complicates comparisons to British 1913 and 27 Mental Deficiency Acts were not extended to Ireland. However, Irish local authorities did expend more on mental health services. In the key municipal services of TB, mental health and infectious diseases, by 1936, expenditure was comparatively close to the English and Welsh mean, indicating that while Belfast Corporation was far from the biggest spender, it was neither the most parsimonious within the UK context. However, I think what is most striking from these figures is the lack of spending in maternity and child welfare, which you see at the very bottom there. This lack of uh, expenditure on maternity and child welfare services in comparison to British cities, although the Belf- Belfast, Belfast figure is close to the Dublin figure. The r- remainder of this paper is going to concentrate on the factors that undermined Belfast, Belfast's maternity and child welfare. Edwardian's fear of population decline, motivated partly by the pseudoscience of eugenics, led to increased legislation in the field of maternity and child welfare. The Notification of Births Acts in 1905 and 1915 and the Midwives Ireland Act in 1918 legislated for the regulation and development of such services. The 1918 Maternity and Child Act confirmed the importance of maternal and child welfare in the sphere of public health policy. It empowered local authorities to provide medical services for all children under 5 and expecting and nursing women and included antenatal and postnatal assistance centres and at home. Free and subsidised milk and food depots were also included. Central government grants were introduced for up to 50% of local authority expenditure and voluntary services could also receive funding from government sources. In in November 1918, Belfast Corporation's Maternity and Child Welfare Committee was established to administer the scheme. It consisted of 15 elected councillors, a number of co-opted members that were largely from the voluntary sector, and its meetings were regularly attended by by the Medical Officer of Health. By 1922, five maternity and child child welfare centres had been established in Belfast, which provided medical examinations of women and children. Mothers received advice on the care of infants and young children and were supplied with instructive instructive literature, and milk was distributed to needy cases. Grants were made, made to existing voluntary hospitals, including the Incorporated Maternity Hospital and the Hospital for Women and Sick Children and homes, including both Catholic and Protestant institutions for unmarried mothers and illegitimate children, were also funded. The clinics were run in tandem with voluntary women's groups and held babies' clubs, which drew on Belfast's large network of middle-to-upper-class female charitable and philanthropic activity. Lady Aberdeen's Women's National Health Association set up its first baby club in the city in 1908, and its Charlotte Street Clinic was run by the Women's United Service League. The remaining maternity and child welfare centres were run by the municipal medical officials which by 1927 amounted to three part-time doctors and 11 paid nurses who also carried out home visitations. These centres however were still reliant on voluntary effort and by 1930 were supported by 20 voluntary ladies who reportedly had an interest in child welfare. The weekly centres were held in buildings throughout the city, often rented from religious authorities such as Presbyterian Mission Halls and Church of Ireland and Catholic parochial halls, including that of the Catholic St Paul's Parish Hall on the Falls Road. The maternity and child welfare services, however, were rudimentary compared to those of British municipal authorities. Purpose built local clinics, municipal controlled maternity hospitals, and extensive free milk schemes for needy mothers and children were all features of an expanding service in interwar Britain. As late as 1941, an independent report condemned Belfast's maternity and child welfare scheme, stating that, quote, Belfast falls far short of what might reasonably be expected in such a city. Paradoxically, the need for s- such services was evident. By Belfast's high infant and maternal mortality rates. Although Belfast's infant mortality rate had de- decreased from early 1900s, in 1901 it was 154 per 1,000 births, by 1921 it was 114. It still remained extremely high. The problem reached nadir in 1929, when Belfast's infant, matern- infant mortality rate of 112 was the highest recorded of any British or Irish city. The maternal mortality rate also witnessed an increase and was one of the highest of any British city throughout this period. One of the most obvious differences between Belfast Corporation and similar, similar industrial boroughs in Britain was politics and the lack of comparable labour movement. A strong adversarial and combative local labour party could lead to the rapid development of municipal services. This was demonstrated in the high-spending bar- Barnsley Borough, where local Labour Party political activity prioritised maternity and child rev- welfare and viewed services such as free milk as vital to, rising, to raising the standard to buy for disadvantaged families. Labour activism was often tied to feminist campaigns. For maternity provision, this was demonstrated in Interwar Glasgow, where a motivated female and Labour councillor, Mary Barbour, was instrumental in the building of new centres in the city. The Northern Irish Labour Party, under the prominent Harry Midgley, did have some electoral gains during the period. Also, the Central Women's Section of the Northern Irish Labour Party, established in 1924, frequently addressed Belfast's high maternal and infant mortality rates by holding conferences, public meetings, and passing resolutions, calling for increased municipal expenditure. This committee succeeded in getting one of its members, and Mrs. McCauley, elected to the Corporation and the Maternity and Child Welfare Committee in 1927. However, the general overall weakness of socialist politics in the city some way dampened growth in municipal maternity and child welfare. Notwithstanding the limitations of labor, it has been demonstrated that politics was often only one of a range of factors determining municipal public health. In England and Wales, county boroughs controlled by traditional elites often experienced municipal healthcare growth. Notions of civic pride, the d- influence of medical professionals, and a general commitment to community public health led to municipal expansion in non-Labour boroughs. In Belfast, limited Labour politics didn't prevent original expansion in TB, mental health, and infectious disease provision. Belfast Corporation's interest in public health was demonstrated with the appointment of Dr. Charles Thompson as medical superintendent of health in 1929. Thompson was previously the medical officer of health of the Deptford Borough in London and prominent in the public health community and contributed to public health journals as well as frequently writing letters to the British Medical Journal. Thompson saw off local interest in a process which the Belfast Telegraph saw as a break from the system of patronage which it claimed often marked corporation appointments. Historians have criticized public health officials for their failure to challenge the social and economic causes of poor health, particularly the impact of unemployment on infant and maternal mortality during the economic depression. It has also been maintained that the prevalence of germ theory led to a greater emphasis on personal prevention and responsibility, thus depriving public health of a social and political force. Contrastingly, it has been demonstrated that an active, energetic, energetic and determined medical officer of health could often positively shape municipal health care, probably most famously in the celebrated case in the English borough of Rochdale where reforms implemented led to a drop in the maternal mortality from 7.8 to 1.8 per thousand births between 1930 and 1932. Belfast's new medical officer of health, Thompson, ascribed to the personal prevention and individual responsibility perspective. He promoted the teaching of mothercraft and believed that infant mortality all comes back to the question of an educated motherhood. Thompson, however, was cognizant of wider social and economic circumstances and highlighted the role of unemployment and poverty. He reported that infant deaths from prematurity, debility, pneumonia, and bronchitis were, quote, in part due to poverty and insufficient food. A thin and badly nourished mother tends to produce a thin baby below weight. Thompson's progressiveness was demonstrated when he recommended the reorganisation of Belfast's Maternity and Child Welfare scheme in 1930. Thompson's report on Belfast's existing schemes noted that while £48,000 was expended on TB services, only £2,800 came from the rates on Maternity and Child Welfare. He recommended the building of two new centres in Ballymacarted in East Belfast and Durham Street close to the city centre. That were to provide facilities for general examination, medical consultancy and treatment of women with VD, along with dental and throat, nose and ear specialist services. Rooms for perinatal and postnatal classes, laboratory analysis, sunlight therapy and dining halls for free meal services were also included. Thompson's proposed plan included the establishment of a municipal hospital for sick children, the opening of an orthopaedic clinic for children with disabilities, and the integration of health visitations undertaken by both the maternity and child welfare, TB, and school medical service committees. Thompson's ambitious plans were similar to the all in health centres developed in London's interwar labour boroughs. These provided preventative and curative health services and treatment delivered by multidisciplinary medical professionals combined with didactic education and self-care, and were democratically and locally controlled. Belfast's Maternity and Child Welfare Committee and subsequently the Finance Committee approved the proposals without the ambitious plan for a new sick children's hospital. Support was evident from not just the Labour councillors, but also the controlling union's politicians. Samuel McLaughlin, the Ulster Union's chairman of the Maternity and Child Welfare Committee, was one of the proposed plan's strongest supporters. The unionist Belfast Telegraph stated that while Thompson's proposals were costly, quote, lives are precious, and as time, something was done to supplement our efforts. Thompson's plan was met with wider approval and welcomed by the Northern Irish Labour Party, the Belfast Women's Advisory Council, the Church of Ireland, and the Presbyterian and Methodist churches. Similar expressions were, however, not forthcoming from nationalists or sections of unionism, including the Ulster Unionist Women's Council. The plans were based, however, on the continuation of a 50% funding from central government, which the original legislation provided for. Although the UNIS government were committed to maintaining cash social welfare benefits such as old age pension and unemployment benefits at wider UK levels, in what was known as a step-by-step policy, this was not extended to local government services. Also, the unionist government was divided between ministers that were committed to high levels of social spending and the more fiscally conservative who opposed what they viewed as extravagant public expenditure. When Thompson's plan for maternity and child welfare expansion came before the cabinet, it had strong support from the, for the Minister of Home Affairs, Dawson Bates, who had responsibility for local government. He argued that the lack of central government Funding led to maternity and child welfare being in quote a state of arrested development and that efforts should concentrate on reducing the infant mortality rate to a figure comparable with England. However, the fiscally conservative Minister for Finance, Hugh Pollock, refused the expenditure increase. He criticised Belfast cooperation for basing the scheme on fifty percent state funding and argued that local authorities made a limited contribution to other budgets, primarily education and police. Pollock was highly critical of the corporation claiming that there can be no comparison between the financial relations of government vis-a-vis British as against Northern Irish local authorities. If Belfast claims a 50% child welfare grant because such great grants are made to British towns, it follows that they must be prepared to undertake comparable liabilities because parity of benefits postulates parity in responsibilities. Although the representatives from local government maintained that the government was liable to the 50% costs and that infant mater- and maternal welfare was not just a local but a national issue, the increase of central government funding was ultimately, ultimately den- denied. The, future, the prospect of any future funding was further undermined in 1930 when the percentage grant system was replaced by a block grant system in general for local government services. And see this here from 1930... The bottom blue one is uh, central government funding, and we can see from 1930 it's static at the same rate, so they've introduced a block grant system, so any development of uh, local services from there on would have to come from the local rates. The maternity and child welfare scheme be- became embroiled in wider conflict between the Northern Irish government and the Belfast Corporation, as both sides sought to take powers from each other, pass on costs, and establish final authority for action or inaction. Similar processes were evident throughout much of interwar Europe as central-local government relations became reformed and realigned. The situation in Northern Ireland was particularly exacerbated by Northern Ireland's devolved context, context, and that Northern and that the. Belfast Corporation's financial and political power came close to rivaling that of the state. The lack of central government support prohibited the development of Belfast's maternity and child welfare scheme, demonstrating that central government remained important in such locally delivered welfare services. The type of scheme envisaged by Thompson did not come come about, and in particular the purpose built to municipal health health centres didn't emerge, although some growth was forthcoming. So I think so far, Belfast confirms to an overly negative perspective with government inertia and parsimony undermining develops to develop preventive services designed to reduce infant and maternal mortality. However, in understanding public health, particularly in Belfast, other welfare providers are of vital importance. Firstly, the poor law system remains central to Northern Irish public health and welfare in the interwar era, Although the need to separate medical provision from poor relief was widely articulated by Northern Irish officials, the poor law remained in place until 1948. In England and Wales, the poor law was dismantled under the 1929 Local Government Act, leading to the appropriation of former poor law services and buildings by municipal bodies such as Maternity and Child Welfare Committees. In the Irish Free State, the poor law was formally disbanded outside of Dublin with independence, although a largely unreformed dispensary system continued to provide midwifery services. In Northern Ireland, the dispensary system continued to provide domiciliary midwifery services, and in 1935, Belfast had 16 midwives that attended over 1,200 maternity cases. The system was far from ideal. The 1936 Committee on Maternal Mortality and Morbidity reported that the poor law maternity services were for the needy poor and that those above the status of poor poor were treated by private practitioners. Dispensary midwives were part-time and lowly paid who supplemented their income with private practice at times to the detriment of non-paying patients. The dispensary maternity service was rudimentary, failed to provide extensive antenatal or post natal care, and had limited integration with the municipal maternity and child welfare scheme. However, extensive investment in workhouse institutional medical services was forthcoming. Reform from below was initiated, and by 1932, 11 workhouses throughout the north had been transformed into district hospitals, which effectively disassociated medical relief from. the poor law. In Belfast, the workhouse underwent, underwent a rapid process of medicalization in the 19s, 1920s and 1930s, leading to the building of a new block for cancer patients, extensions to the nurse's home, and children's infirmary block, and the building of an x-ray department and laboratory, which represented a combined cost of close to £200,000. By 1932, the infirmary had over 1,700 beds and a medical staff of seven visiting specialists and consultants, seven resident medical officers, an apothecary, 45 nurses, and 170 probation, pr- probationary nurses undergoing training, along with a full time bacteriologist and radiographer. The biggest expansion by the Belfast Board of Gu- Guardians was the building of a new maternity hospital, the Jubilee, which opened in 1935. At a cost of £36,000, the new institution was a modern facility with 133 beds and represented a significant undertaking by the guardians in the field of maternity care. The development of the Jubilee Maternity Hospital was greatly influenced by the expanding medical staff in the infirmary. The leading medical official, Dr. Holmes, initially proposed a new maternity hospital on medical grounds, informing the guardians that the existing provision was insuff- insufficient and that separated and isolated treatment for sepsis-, sepsis cases was needed. The lady superintendent also called for a new maternity hospital, highlighting that it would allow for the increase of trainee nurses from 20 to 68 Professional medical interest and influence and the threat of infectious disease motivated the guardians in their actions. The guardians believed that they had implemented what they termed a progressive policy and claimed that the workhouse infirmary compared favourably with that of any other modern hospital, which, which would result in benefits to the community. Similar commitment to community public health has been identified as a factor in English municipal hospital provision. However, the Guardians' failure to invest in the dispensary service and their controversial ordinary welfare regimes, which led to the 1932 outdoor relief, relief rights and much social unrest, indicates that the board was more interested in bricks and mortar than addressing wider socio-economic disadvantages. The expansion, however, did have an impact on the popularity of maternity services. In 1923, there were 357 births in the Belfast workhouse, of which 176 were of illegitimate children. By 1938, a similar number of unmarried mothers gave birth in the workhouse, 189, but the number of legitimate births had substantially grown to 1,150. The number of voluntary beds grew from 1078 in 1921 to 1432 in 1940, the proportion of beds which were comparatively larger than many British cities, such as Glasgow and Sheffield, although substantially smaller than than Dublin's extensive voluntary sector, which by the 1930s amounted to circa six beds per thousand of the population. In Belfast, voluntary maternity services in the early 1920s was limited to the 26-bed incorporated line in-hospital. However, expansion was forthcoming and a new institution the Royal Maternity Hospital was established through the amalgamation of the incorporated hospital and the Royal Victoria Hospital. The Royal Victoria was Ulster's leading and most prestigious voluntary hospital and medical institution and was centrally tied to the traditional philanthropy of the social elite. By 1923, the Duke of Abercorn and Governor of Northern Ireland was its president. Its annual meetings were civic events and frequently addressed by political figures, such as the Prime Minister James Craig. The establishment of the new maternity hospital was spearheaded by such elites, and the Duchess of Abercorn headed a public appeal for funds. Belfast's leading medical figures, particularly Professor R.J. Johnston, who who also held a chair in Queens Medical School, were pivotal to the merger. The new hospital represented the ongoing solidification of relations between Queen's and the Royal Victoria, which included the opening of the university's pathology department in 1933 on the medical site. Medical professional interest and career consolidation were important dynamics in the establishment of the Royal Maternity Hospital, factors long, long recognised as central to the development of specialist hospitals. An influential combination of social, political and medical elites were central to the establishment of a new hospital that opened in 1933 at a cost of £130,000. However, the voluntary action was not solely indicative of traditional philanthropy aimed at socially and morally uplifting the poor. Working class support was also important and mutualistic contribution schemes emerged as vital to the Belfast voluntary hospitals. Such worker contribution schemes were representative of of developing notions of citizenship, self help, and entitlement, and trans- represented a transformation in the ethos of voluntary healthcare. Also, private healthcare was important, and a number and award was set aside for patients that paid full fees in the new maternity hospital. Such voluntary activity undermined the municipal sector. In 1931, in the Northern Irish Parliament, Dr. Johnston, the MP and Professor of Gynecology and Midwifery in Queens, stated during the debate on the proposed municipal expansion that the plan was essentially unsuitable and overly costly and pointed towards the great work being done in the voluntary sector. Pre-NHS public health is often criticised for the existence of separate providers which militated against planning and integration and that the genesis of central service didn't emerge until the 1940s. In interwar Belfast, such claims are relevant, and both the voluntary and poor law sectors developed independently, which in many ways undermined the corporation's Maternity and Child Welfare scheme. However, the establishment of the Royal Maternity Hospital was based on amalgamation between existing hospitals and represented planning and medical expertise. It was was also established as an Ulster-wide institution, unlike the Belfast-focused poor law and municipal provision. This also demonstrated support amongst politicians and medical leaders for what was termed hierarchical regionalism, a contemporary term which denoted the spatial organization of voluntary health services around a central urban teaching hospital, which would act as the focus of medical specialism and scientific expertise. Such thinking highlights a degree of sophisticated planning and coordination. Also, a degree of integration of services was apparent. Belfast Corporation provided the land for the building of the Royal Maternity Hospital. The hospital also had a maternity and child welfare clinic, which was part-funded and run by the corporation, who gave an annual grant of 1000 to the institution. The Municipal Medical Officer of Health, Thompson, sat on his his board of management. Thompson also later reported good relations between the municipal and voluntary authorities, and referral mechanisms from the Maternity and Child Welfare Centres to the Royal Maternity were in place. Furthermore, in 1937, Thomson sought funding to provide for consultants to attend difficult domiciliary midwife cases, midwifery cases. This paved the way for the establishment of an obstetric flying service in 1942, which allowed doctors and midwives to call upon specialist services during home pregnancies. Finally, I'm going to touch on issues of morality and religious opposition. As highlighted by Lindsay, in Dublin, religion was central to the power struggles over maternity and child welfare, and particularly the issue of birth control, which was categorically relegated to the arena of morality and consciously excluded from any health debates. In Northern Ireland, the influence of the churches, while not as prominent as in the Sound, was nevertheless important. Local and central authorities were often at pains to avoid contentious issues that would provoke religious opposition, particularly from the Catholic Church. As highlighted by Leanne McCormack, governmental authorities' attitudes and policy towards issues such as venereal disease and in particular family planning were at pains to uphold the the morals of the churches. While from 1930, the British Ministry of Health permitted birth control advice in maternity clinics in certain cases, there is li- limited, if any, discussion of birth control at either local or central government in interwar Belfast. Although Mary Stokes Family Planning Clinic was opened in 1936, it ultimately closed down due to the lack of support from the public or government, and which indicated the potential threat from our power of the religious authorities, a process which has been explored by both Liam McCormack and Professor Jones. McCormack has also highlighted that from 1940, a doctor in the Royal Maternity, Dr. Anderson, ran a small family planning clinic, but never had more than 30 or 40 attendees. For much of the interwar years, the issue of morality didn't explicitly impact the maternity and child welfare, and particularly on the corporation schemes. However, from the 1940s, the Catholic religious authorities became increasingly involved in maternity services, and in 1945, the matter the hospital was the Catholic voluntary hospital in the city, opened a 24-bed maternity wing, which was fully committed to Catholic social ethos. By 1940, significant developments in maternity and child welfare had come about. Maternity services had some way developed, and a large proportion of births were carried out in hospitals, although the majority continued to be home births. This is demonstrated in uh, this table here. Can see the increase in births in the Union Maternity Hospital and in the Royal Maternity Hospital. Although the majority are still by practitioners and midwives in uh, in home circumstances. In 1922, five maternity and child welfare c- centres existed, in which only 10% of all infants born were examined. In. By 1939, this had increased to up to 95%. of of, of all infants, indicating that nearly every baby born visited a maternity and child welfare clinic at least once. However, significant gaps still existed, and only 10% of pregnant women attended uh, clinics for antenatal care. The infant and maternal rates didn't decrease, although the latter was still one of the highest in the United Kingdom. The overly positive picture of interwar municipal public health has to be moderated in a, British, in a Belfast context. Although expenditure on TB, infectious disease, and mental health was close to the English and Welsh mean, the stunted development of maternity and child welfare undermined the efficacy of such services. Local central government inertia and parsimony, sectorial competition from other providers, and the predominance of professional and institutional interest all point towards the traditional negative understandings on pre NHS healthcare. However, growth and expansion was apparent, primarily the poor law and voluntary sectors and the establishment of both the Jubilee and Royal Royal Maternity Hospitals was an impressive undertaking during a period of economic depression. Furthermore, the integration, coordination and planning of services between the various sectors was beginning to take shape. Socially, the municipal poor law and voluntary Services were increasingly appealing to wider sections of the population than just the poor who were the traditional recipients of such services. In all, the ground was being paved away for the introduction of the NHS in 1948. Thank you.